Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for joining us for this episode. And apologies that this episode's been some time in the making. We actually recorded this in early March, just before everything started to go into lockdown with the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm speaking with Cullen Gunn, the founder and portfolio manager for Kilter Rural. Kilter Rural is an investment manager focused on rural agricultural investments. It operates three investment strategies, two in the water area, one of which has an impact cause functionality about it, where part of that water is diverted for environmental use, and another more typical water trading strategy, as well as a farmland strategy that we discuss. These funds have returned between 8 and 19% per annum since inception, and I think you'll find it's an interesting part of the market that not a lot of investors have had exposure to. I encourage you to listen to the disclosure at the end of this podcast and to be reminded that the podcast isn't an endorsement or recommendation of any specific investment and that all people are encouraged to receive advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please keep your feedback coming. It's really valuable. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks. Callan Gunn, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And well, hello to your listeners. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, it's a bit of a different location we've got this morning. Um, I ventured down to Melbourne for some meetings and uh, we're, we're sitting in the Australian Club on William Street here, which is a fantastic building, but a bit of a different location. So we might hear a tram in the background. Um, Callum, perhaps you could kick us off by giving us uh, a background to yourself um, that gives a, our listeners a bit of an understanding of who you are. Sure. Uh, well, I'm in my mid-50s now. Um, I've had a working life in land and water management. Uh, it's, it's more than work. It's been a passion, I guess. Um, in the context of the Australian environment in which we live and work, I'd describe myself nowadays as a... As a ecological nationalist. Uh, by that I mean I've always believed you can marry agricultural production with ecosystem protection, take private money and deliver you know, real returns and impact. So that, that's been a driving force for me for a long time. Um, you look at Australia, there's 45 million years of isolationary evolution here. Uh, the diversity of things is amazing. Uh, much of it's unique. I've always found that, you know, enormously exciting. I still get excited when I see an echidna waddling across a paddock. You know, it's it's something that I really enjoy. So, for me, working in Australian landscapes is a privilege, um, and and it's something we've done for a long time. I, I think, personally, and the organisation I represent, uh, if you look at the future of food production in the world, you know, there's stats saying we need to produce 50% more. You've got to ask yourself where that's going to come from. Um, and uh, Australia is remarkably well-placed to help deliver some of that, in our view. Um, so re just rewind a little bit. I think you said there 50% more. And, and is this sort of all about the, the rise of Asia and Australia being the economic food bowl? Yeah. Is this the type of thing you're talking about? Well, that's the type of thing that's driving everything. You know, that there's a heap more people and they're going to be a, need a heap more food, basically. So... Um, how do you produce that 
uh, in a constrained world. You know, that's one of the challenges we have to face. You know, it's not limitless. Our resources are constrained. So, um, you know, there's sort of three options, really. The first is you create more arable land. Now, basically, the only way you do that is by clearing native vegetation. 70% of the Earth's already highly modified. That doesn't leave much. So if you start in, or continue to clear, and stats show we're clearing about an area the size of the UK every year still across the globe, um, that's just untenable in a future with rapid onset climate change and untenable for species loss. You know, we will have the next mass extinction event if we keep moving down that path. So we don't reckon that's an option. The second thing is technology, you know, that will drive change. Um, so, you know, you'll get petri dish meat, uh, you'll get mass glasshouse expansion and growing food through those mediums, that will happen. Uh, but there's a middle ground between those two things that's often overlooked, uh, and it's an area we're focusing on, and that's regenerating already highly modified land. Uh, and that's where we're building a niche. So you started Kilter Rural, I think, in 2004, is that right? Um, can you give us a little bit about who Kilter Rural is, what its objective is, and, and what it seeks to do? Yeah, that, that you've got the dates right. 2004, we were established. I co-founded it with, with um, a couple of people, Sean and Anita Butters. Uh, we basically started the organisation in response to a request from Vic Super, which is an institutional super fund in Victoria, who were seeking to take a leadership and you know, get first mover advantage in agricultural renewal. So they looked out, they said, we're a Victorian fund, we want to invest back in Victoria, we want to do that regionally, we want to help regional communities, we want to regenerate soils, we want to protect ecosystems. Just terrific. The marriage was fantastic for us. Uh, so we established based on that, you know, their first commitment uh, or their commitment to us at that point was over 200 million. You know, in the context of commitments to agriculture, that was probably one of the biggest at the time. Um, uh, and, you know, a serious sort of play in the space. Um, so we were very fortunate to find ourselves in that position. And they've been terrific collaborators with us over the past 15 years. Um, that mandate we run for them now is around 9,000 hectares. Uh, half of that has been redeveloped and regenerated for high value, high efficiency irrigation. So we use three different types of irrigation technologies in that. So irrigated farming, crop it's farming? It's all irrigated farming, yep, mm -hmm. yeah, annual crops on the whole. And in what sort of area, region? Uh, Victoria? Northwest Victoria and North Central Victoria, yeah. Okay, so what sort of towns would people recognise? Swan Hill, Kerrang. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, you're really in rangeland, almost desert stuff if the river wasn't there, you know, it's pretty dry. So um, 4,500 hectares, we use subsurface drip tape, which basically is the most efficient way we can deliver water and nutrients to a plant. Subsurface drip tape. Yep. You'll have to explain that to us. So it's just a, it's a tiny tube of plastic, basically, that goes about 30 or 40 centimetres underground. So it's right underneath the root of the plant mm -hmm. and it's water's pumped. So it's pressurised and it delivers water and nutrient because we can put the nutrient into the, into the soluble mix and feed that straight to plants. So we get enormous efficiencies um, with water use and nutrient deployment. Uh, that's really important for us because we're all about adding value to water. So you scale down from that. You know, when water's really scarce, that's the medium we use to grow stuff. Uh, when it's 
more abundant, we can then use overhead pivot irrigators. You know, again, it's more efficient than normal flood irrigation. Uh, but, you know, you have wet years too, so we've also still got flood irrigation, but it's highly automated. We use moisture probes, so we know how much water needs to be put onto the soil. So everything we do has got a technological bent to it because that just drives efficiency and scale helps enormously with efficiency. So the Vic Super properties now, and these were quite dilapidated. So, so you acquired the properties? Yep, uh, uh, close to 40 of them. We've mm -hmm. still got 35. They've been aggregated, completely redeveloped. Um, and as I said, 4,500 hectares of irrigation. That's now producing uh, the largest tomato processing tomato crop in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so there's 80,000 tonnes of tomatoes coming out of that landscape as we speak. Uh, this rain event makes me a little nervous, the one that's coming, mm -hmm. uh, but we've been through that before, but you're always nervous until it's all off. Um, we're the largest grower of organic grains uh, in Australia, irrigated organic grains. So um, again, it's about delivering high value produce that can cope with a higher value of water. Um, we still have lucerne in our rotation because it's a really good soil ameliorant and we're in quite saline landscapes so we need to manage that salt uh, water soil interface. Uh, and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, the last thing we, we've been doing uh, more recently is the Queen Garnet Plum which uh, is a fantastic new, new variety, like it tastes spectacular, it looks it's, it's blood, blood, deep, dark, dark mm -hmm. red, like it is an extraordinary bit of fruit. But it's also really good for you. So we actually had um, quite sophisticated export markets for that this year, which got hit a bit by the coronavirus, but we've been able to sell it all locally regardless. So, you know, that, that is an exercise in transformation that has been just extraordinary, really, what's gone on. And I think you there. mentioned there, Colin, that half the land was used for farming and irrigation. What was the other half of the land that you acquired for? Well, when you buy farms like that, it's quite, you know, you can't just pick the eyes out of the ones you want. You always get a bit of daggy land with it that's mm -hmm. not suitable for irrigation. One of the things we always do is uh, try and align the land use with the land capability, and it's just not suitable to put irrigation everywhere. You know, that's what we did in the past, and it created some quite serious land degradation problems. So, you know, induced salinity, for instance. So there is about 4,000 hectares that we have put back to an environmental and carbon sequestration purpose. Uh, and within that, you know, we can still do some low input grazing because it's on native pasture. Uh, but that has given us a net carbon sink. So over and above everything we operate on that farm, we are sequestering more carbon than we're emitting. I reckon that we're probably the first corporate to actually get to that position. So. The Vic Super farmland is actually part of the solution to climate change now in sequestering carbon as opposed to adding to the problem, which is a significant development for us. And, and how has that worked out from an investment point of view? I noticed on all your material you talk about uh, profit and purpose as being an objective of Kilter Rural. How has the profit side of uh, the investment or equation worked out in that instance? Uh, look, it's worked out well. I mean, it's never as you plan. You know, every model you do in life is wrong. Sure. Um, <laughs> they're informative, but they're always wrong. But look, we had a hurdle rate of eight, yes. and, and we've surpassed, well surpassed 8 that. Eight percent per annum and yeah. surpassed that. Yeah, yeah, we've surpassed that. So we're very, you know, we're, we're gratified to be able to say to the investors, look, over 15 years, this has worked well for you.
and it has been particularly good over the last five. Well, well done. That's how you sort of made the transition. What were you doing prior to establishing Kilter Rural, Colin? A series of things. So I worked in, you know, one of the reasons we know about water and, mm -hmm. and you know, we are the preeminent and longest uh, group in the water market is, is basically I was in water policy for a long time, um, you know, not directly but around it with government uh, and saw the cap in the Murray-Darling Basin come in in 1994, saw the development of markets, uh, understood the uh, transition that would occur between um, uh, when they separated land and water. So yep. prior to 2007, you couldn't actually own water unless you owned a piece of irrigation land. Post then you could. Yes. So we thought that that would really open up the market and see it evolve. So Our listeners will be familiar with that concept we've had uh, uh, Kim Morrison on both with a blue sky water hat on and then an argyle water hat on. So we've covered that part of it. So hopefully our listeners will remember that separation, the, the, watering, the water rights trading and owning uh, part of things. If we just circle back maybe to the uh, profit and impact or profit and purpose uh, objective. And I think all of our listeners will understand profit and investing for profit very well. Uh, we've had Michael Trail on an episode before in terms of impact investing. But I'd be really interested to hear about, Cullen, how you um, talk about or, or um, think about impact or purpose investing and what sort of outcomes you're aiming for. Uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific question and a very topical one. Um, you, you know, there is a lot of discussion nowadays about impact and ESG or sustainable development goals. Um, you know, the, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but, uh, you know, the Responsible Investment Framework, there's all those things. And, <coughs> yep. you know, they're great guidelines, uh, but that really is about as far as they go. For us, we want to deliver profit with impact. We want to regenerate Australian landscapes and leave a legacy of sustainable production and ecosystem protection. Now, in the context of where we are right now, climate policies, you know, being a bit all over the place, mm -hmm. um, we haven't in any of our models accounted for carbon sequestration payments. I think we're sort of hitting a flex point with that discussion and we're going to see some pretty rapid changes in that area. So the impact we deliver, uh, for instance, in our newest fund, the Australian Farmland Fund, we will buy property and revegetate 30% of that landscape, put it back to native vegetation that we believe we will be able to sequester carbon through and get paid for. Mm -hmm. So we think Ultimately, it will benefit our yields and our bottom line and our profit. Um, it's been a challenge up to now. We know and we've proven that in the context of rehabilitating landscapes, native vegetation, ecosystem protection are actually beneficial. You know, these things work hand in glove. If you want to produce long term, you've got to protect the natural capital you're dealing with. Uh, we've had a legacy now of, you know, over 220 years or wherever we're up to. Uh, of pretty much mining resources mm -hmm. um, and putting ecosystem function back into landscapes has been really important for our returns and managing some of those degradation issues. So in irrigation landscapes, as I touched on before, you do have a propensity and you've got to manage for induced salinity in most of our landscapes. The southern Murray-Darling Basin used to be an inland sea. You know, it was underwater. Uh, and so is inherently saline. So if you put water on at the wrong rates, um, big problems. In the context of that, native vegetation plays an amazing role in helping moderate 
groundwater ascension and salinity because trees just pump out water all the time. So, you know, it's a, it's a great sort of fallback for us. Colin, I think you, am I right in thinking that you've got three strategies or funds that you manage at the moment? Can We've you... got three open strategies. I mean, the mandate's sort of ticking away. That's yes. going on. Uh, the other three strategies, there's two water ones and the newest is the Farmlands Fund. But the, the, there's the Kilter Water Fund, yes. which is about 18 million in assets under management. It's delivered 17% return since inception. Uh, it's just a straight investment in water entitlements. So it buys, owns, trades Water Not rights. so much trades. Most of the time it's through leases and forward delivery contracts to mm -hmm. irrigators. Um, more skewed on the forward delivery and carryover products for people. Then there's the Balanced Water Fund. Uh, yep. And this is unique in the world. So this is a partnership between Kilter Rural and the Nature Conservancy, which is one of the biggest environment organisations in the world. Uh, we work with their Australian arm to deliver an impact investment into water where We've tried to show that you can get around that either agriculture or environment view, even with water. We've done it on landscapes. We've proven we can do it. We're constantly in this battle at the moment between, all right, you either use it for the environment or you use it for agriculture. The Balanced Water Fund works quite differently in that when water's abundant and farmers can access it easily, you know, there's a lot of rain around, we donate water to the environment, more water, up to 40% of our portfolio in that fund. The opportunity cost is much lower when water is abundant, you know, it might be 20 bucks a megalitre as opposed to now at 600. And when it's really dry, so, you know, farmers get 60% of the water still, uh, probably through leases most of the time, and the environment gets 40%. But when it's really dry, we've got to pare back everything so the donation goes down to about 10% mm -hmm. and farmers get 90% of the water. So you're servicing dual outcomes through the one water fund, which is, I, I think, you know, a model that should be looked at more closely. And, and how do you manage the interests, the economic interests of the investor versus the environment and who gets priority when, when push comes to shove? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. That's why we partner with TNC. So our obligation is to manage the water and deliver returns. That is Kilter's obligation. Now, the fund has constituted set rules about water donations. They're immovable. You know, they're not based on a whim or our discretion or the trustees' discretion. It is set in concrete. If the government says that the outlook is this sort of, you know, year, it's going to be wet, yep. you, get, you donate more water. If the government says it's going to be dry, we donate less water. Okay. And, so, and, and just touching on the first fund that you've had, which is uh, the, the straight water, more traditional fund, um, talk to me about, and we get some clients will ask questions around the ethic of that. How do you think about the, the ethics of that type of fund and the outcomes that's delivering? Because I, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're far more the expert than I am, that you, there's a tension perhaps, and, and you'll have one side of the coin saying, well, actually, pricing water is a fantastic environmental management outcome because the people used to drag lots of water to grow rice um, are now saying, well, actually, I won't drag it to, to grow rice because the margin on that, the productivity of that makes no sense. I'll sell it to someone who's going to grow almonds and therefore, you know, if, if you want to protect and conserve something, you price it um, and that's a, a fantastic outcome. The other side of that is saying, well, uh, perhaps people being involved in investing in the market uh, is driving up the price for farmers and driving up the price for food, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discussion that will go on for some time. Our view is quite clear. Uh, we think the market is absolutely vital to coping with where we're going to end up uh, in the future of you know, increased events and water variability. Uh, scarcity is happening. So if you look at what's going on in the basin right now, since 1970 there's been a 26% reduction in winter rainfall. That has then cascades down to a 35% reduction in inflows. Uh, it's, that's a climate change footprint, you know, fingerprint, sorry. Um, so you're getting increasing scarcity. Uh, historical averages are meaningless. You know, I think the future is quite a different scenario to what we've experienced in the past. And markets, in our view, actually provide flexibility for people to respond. So if you look at what happened in the millennial drought, uh, at the peak of it, there was a 70% reduction in water availability. Murray-Darling Basin production dropped by 30%. People were absolutely, you know, had options to trade out of it. So things like the, the Kilter Water Fund and the Balanced Water Fund, you know, our operating model is we have two clients. One's the investor and the other's the irrigator. And we have to service both of them. We have to have irrigators that stay in business. It's absolutely vital to us. You know, all our stuff is relationship driven. It's face to face. 90% of the time, that's how we generate water product deals. Um, so we have been leasing people water now for over 10 years. We've been delivering four contracts to people for over 10 years. Um, our operating model when we, when we do go into the market, and we don't often, but when we do go into the market, we purchase for purpose. It's not to speculate, it's me purchasing because David wants water delivered next year at a certain price, and we'll go out and buy that for them. So we add liquidity to the market. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that happens with, and the way we've acquired some of our entitlements, is it helps people, I guess, manage their balance sheet. So, you know, I might, you might say to me, well, look, I want to buy the farm next door. I've got 300 mega water sitting here as an asset I own. Uh, I'll, we'll buy it off you and lease it straight back to you. Now, your risk profile has not changed at all. You get, you get access to the water, but you also get access to 100% of the value of those entitlements as opposed to a bank which might give you 60%. So, you know, I think ethically and morally where we're going, this is the scarcest resource on the planet. Um, I really can't see uh, uh, any other way, sensible way of dealing with that scarcity so that, you know, you can flex when it's wet, you can use water to grow rice and cotton. You know, that's what happens. When it's, mm -hmm. when it's really wet, they use water and that's, you know, that's what should be happening. Uh, and the there's enough now for the environment to get water as well. And when it's really dry, you can get condensed back to those higher value crops. I can't see any other sensible way to do it. And I think it's morally right that that's the way it should work, rather than just have isolated pockets that have access to water, you know, and you just roll it out. I mean, we've seen the impact of that, as you said before yourself. I, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Auditor General in Victoria did a report on irrigation-induced salinity suggesting 460,000 hectares of our country was at risk because we were just sloshing water out. So I think, you know, putting a price on it, yes, it's going to cause change, there's going to be disruption, but I think that will happen regardless, you know. So it's about providing the flexibility of, uh, for people 
and options for people to respond. I think that's really important. And Colin, what, what do you think for an investor is a reasonable expectation out of water assets over the medium to long term as economic outcomes? Uh, look, I think there's still uh, there's still growth to be had there. You know, the balanced water fund, which we've been managing since 2015, that's delivered annualised 20%, um, which is pretty spectacular. I don't think it's going to be like that going forward. Um, you know, if you look at the background capital growth in water, it's it's you know in that six to nine range. Mm -hmm. I think we'll fall back more into that range. But if you look at what's going on in the water market at the moment, and it's one of the key drivers. Uh, for us in considering our farmland investments, um, you've got increasing scarcity, but you've also got a massive increase in demand driven by permanent plantings. Now, these permanent plantings at the moment, you know, they're still very profitable. So you're talking about almond and Almonds, citrus. olives, citrus, you know. They've got, to, they've got to keep watering them they've got each to keep, time, you know, otherwise actual that's tree right. plant You know, 60, 60, 40 to 60,000 bucks a hectare to put in. Mm -hmm. There's no discretion about whether you water them. You know, you might get water more water efficient uh, about how much you put on, but you, you know, in the last drought we did know some some of those uh, groups that actually reduced their, you know, thought they'd cut their water back, and it just smashed their yields. You know, not for one year, but for two years. So there's no discretion there. So the increase in demand is is great. You know, almonds alone have gone from uh, I, I think it's about four thousand hectares in the early two thousands to. 47,000 hectares, you know, and they're not all mature. At mature, it's somewhere between 14 and 20 megs I can per tell hectare. You, I can tell you now, they're still expensive in the, in the store. They are, they are, but they're very good for you, David, so you should continue, <laughs> to, eat, continue to eat them. So, you know, there are drivers there around water, you know, and scarcity that are going to continue. We're still going to have massive fluctuations in availability. So um, if you look at what we do in the context of the Australian Farmland Fund, we We've looked at scarcity, we've looked at demand, and we've gone, all right, well, permanent crops aren't for us. Uh, the, the other issue with some of those permanent crops is they're all situated, mostly, in one part of the system, in the lower Murray system. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two risk issues with that. The first is just access to water, del the deliver deliverability of it. So people think the Murray River is a, a, a natural system, it's not. It's entirely regulated. It's almost as regulated as the water delivered to your house. You know, it's you turn on a tap, you get it delivered. So it's like a pipe. That pipe's got a certain volume of water it can get down. Already the government's saying with groves planted down in the lower Murray, it's possible because they all draw at peak time in summer, it's possible that there will be delivery constraints about getting water there. That's a big risk. The second thing is just availability. The scale of the, the plantings down there are enormous. So um, in the context of a future, if, if you had a dry year like this again in 2028 when all these things come to maturity, somebody's going to miss out. There just will not be enough water in the system to water. So for us, we look at that and we go, all right, well, there's two things we've got to cover with, the, with our farmlands fund. The first is delivery, water delivery security. So we've moved to an area that's closer to storages, uh, that um, is basically underutilised in some in some spots, 80% delivery capacity underutilisation. So we know we'll always be able to get water delivered. Uh, the second thing is um, great soils, but underutilised. So it's an area in transition. There's a lot of you know dairy is 
or was one of the biggest water users in central Victoria. And you know, for a whole range of demographic, um, succession, ageing, water price, you know, people are moving out. So there is an opportunity to buy up really good soil and repurpose it, as we've done under the Vic Supermodel, but with really secure water. And so where does the dairy go? Well, the dairies, it's the best dairy farmers will survive always. Yes. You know, they will grow and get bigger and we can take you places where that's happening. It's the mid-range and lower-range ones that will either move. So, you know, there was one farm we did buy. Dairy farm has gone to southwestern Victoria. He's having his best year he's had in 30 years. Okay. You know, so I think they'll end up moving uh, to rain-fed areas where rainfall is more secure. Colin, before we talk about, I want to move to the farmlands strategy in that fund because I find it particularly interesting. Um, before we, two, two quick questions on water, if I can, before we close that out. Um, how comfortable are you with the legislative risk and your confidence that the government won't come in and change the rules to such a substantial amount that investors are going to be severely impacted, part one? And then secondly, um, are you hopeful, do you ever think there will be a major capital infrastructure project that will change the water altogether? So I'm not talking dams or otherwise, I'm talking pipes down from rivers and all, all that mm. type of thing. That's the second part of that. Uh, look, the first part, regulatory risk, you know, it exists, but it exists in every part of life we do. You know, if you're a property developer in Melbourne, mm -hmm. uh, your council can do whatever. Yep. You know, that, 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 that's just there. I think in the context of the water market, it's, it, you know, to some extent the genie's out of the bottle. You've got a market where you can trade. If you were to come in and say, you know, the government was to say, well, we will stop trade between those regions. Mm -hmm that is going to leave a lot of stranded assets. Well, also, the other, the other side to this is to remember, investors own less than 10% mm -hmm. of the water in, on, on the market. So over 90% is owned by individual irrigators. So if you actually quarantine water trade... So it's not moving the market. Yeah, so it's not moving the market. Uh, it, it, will act, it will significantly devalue those entitlements. You know, I, I reckon, you know, Investors will survive that. Families will be placed under pressure. You know, it, it's it's a key part. If you if you went back ten years, water was sort of one point five times the value of the land. You know, in the context of growing anything, it's probably five or six times now. So you've got a mortgage against that. That that's a real risk if if that asset gets devalued. So I don't think that will be a sensible response. You know, I, I just there will be tinkering at the edges. I think one of the things that would make a huge difference for everybody, uh, and we're all for it, is more transparency around trade. You know, if you had an ASX-like clear, transparent trading house for water, where you have absolute price discovery, real-time trading, real-time pricing, real-time volumes, that would be fantastic. Sounds like an opportunity for someone. It does, it does. It would be a fan, fantastic thing to happen and I think would you know, solve a lot of the anxiety associated with it. And in terms of the major infrastructure projects, can you see anything like that coming on the horizon or would you like to see something like that happen? Look, it's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, there is the, the, we've done major infrastructure projects, so there is a pipe that goes from the north to the south that mm -hmm. you know, will probably never be used. Um, uh, it, it probably gets back to scale and population a bit. You know, the cost of putting a pipe from northern Australia to, to the south, you know, <laughs> it's going to be pretty hefty. Um, 
it, it's probably, you know, I'm not, I just don't have a view on it at the moment other than to say, I think, you know, economically it's going to have to stack up and I'm not sure it will, will you know, in the short term. I just can't, there's no shortage of water necessarily out there. There's a problem with variability uh, and, you know, there's still a problem in some areas with, with delivery and efficiency, you know. Mm. Victoria's done some great things with water efficiency measures. There's still a lot of the basin that hasn't. So there's still a lot of room that could be made up in that space to, to, to free up water, I think. So let's move to your newest fund, which I'm really interested in. I, I think a lot of our clients and investors also have this romantic notion and also, you know, very admirable of wanting to give back and wanting to support rural Australia. And um, you know, quite often they've been involved in, you know, buying the hobby farm and, you know, then wanting to expand out and adjust some cattle and everything else and all sorts of wonderful stories come with that and often uh, you know, a, a fairly good uh, bank account that's gone the wrong way in some of those things. But talk to me about this farmland strategy that you've been running now for a bit over a year, um, what its objective is, what it's doing uh, and how, how it goes about doing that, please. Yeah. Uh, so it's an opportunity based really around adding value to water. That, that's what's driving us at one sense in everything on a production level. Uh, and the second part of it is delivering impact. So we're looking at underutilised and undercapitalised landscapes that are in transition. You know, whether we're there or not, there's going to be a big transition in land ownership in the next 10 years. Uh, we've identified certain areas of northern Victoria and southern New South Wales where we think the soil's terrific, undercapitalised, underutilised delivery, water delivery capacity and access to high reliability water shares. And we are putting it then in place um, a cropping regime that is annual. So there's no permanent crops. It's mm -hmm. an annual cropping regime because we like the flexibility that gives us to respond to water availability. So, so you don't have to harvest or grow or plant one no, year we because get the, the water outputs. That's right. We get the optionality to make a decision about whether to use the water mm -hmm. on a crop if we can add value to it or if we can't, to trade that water. So so you're buying farms here? Yes, we what, are. What sort of sizes? Oh, look, they tend to be smaller farms because we, you know, our job here is to aggregate. And mm -hmm. you know, part of the exit process is to sell on an aggregated turnkey operation at scale you know, to an institution. So our job's buying and up what smaller. sort of institution wants to buy that type of asset? Oh, look, I think increasingly... You know, there's certainly a lot of international interest in those sort of assets. It's the Chinese. It's, uh, we haven't had much from Chinese, but you know, there's the Canadian pension funds, European mm. pension funds are, are absolutely looking at this all the time. You know, and they're looking for ways to deploy and diversify from other areas of the globe. And Australia, just internationally, I think increasingly, you know, low sovereign risk, terrific skilled workforce. Yes, it's expensive, but you know, you you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. Great technology. So I think it's well placed to take international money. I think actually local super funds will start to move that way, but it, it has been slow and a challenge. And, and as Asia and China continues to westernise the demand uh, for food and high quality, uh, highly rated, you know, the A2 milks and Absolutely. black you can see it, and the yeah. organic and, you know, the It's a very the highly, et cetera, yeah, et the stuff we produce is very highly respected globally and, and that's a great thing and something we should we should cherish and hang on to. So, so what sort of crops are they running on these farms? So these crops we, we do, it'll be a 60-40 conventional organic split mm -hmm. uh, and that's all about servicing, you know, really high value offtakes. 
So we have um, two major customers that we've been working with for a long time. One's Kagami, who process all our tomatoes, um, and they are the largest processor in the country. It's a Japanese uh, organisation, but they're based in Echuca. Uh, they must employ 200 people in the factory, so you know there's there's big flow-on effects through this. And they basically any bit of red stuff you eat, you know, we've either grown or they've grown and has been put into Legos or whatever. So mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a terrific relationship. You know, it decommodifies what we do. They give us a price, we weave that into our models and go, yes, we can grow at that price with that margin and we will make a good return for investors on that. Uh, and tomatoes are in that range generally of, you know, somewhere between one and five grand a hectare profit, you know, if, depending on the yield. Uh, so that's the first one. The second one is organic grains. So we have long-term offtake agreements with a company called Haku Baku, who produce I think some of the best noodles in the world with our organic grain. Um, I was at a restaurant recently just around the corner where I ate these noodles and I, you know, these are fantastic. I wonder where they came from. And I asked the chef and they were our noodles. So <laughs> it was, it was uh, quite exciting really. But they're, they're based in Ballarat. And, yes. and again, you know, the grain goes down there, it gets milled and then they put it into their noodles. Uh, and they're doubling the size of that plant based on the offtake agreements we can provide. So they're our two highest value things. Uh, in the farmlands fund, you know, if water gets really, really scarce, we just condense back to that, servicing those offtake agreements. Uh, and when it's more freely available, we can then grow a broader range of crops. Uh, but they underpin most everything we do. Any cattle on any of these farms? No, we don't, we, we don't do stock. No, no. Reason for that? Uh, Legacy issues, you know. <laughs> One of the challenges with, with institutional money is, you, you, you know, you, you get audited regularly and we did have auditors come out and count cows and can you make them stop moving and why is that one dead? And it all just became a bit too too much for us. And I, 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 we're sort of not um, an organisation that's overly into the intensification of animal husbandry so much either. So... Uh, for us, you know, crops, annual crops are the, are the key thing. That's so, so the ethical, moral, yeah, it's part it's, of look. It's the a challenge. Industry. I think. I think it's a challenge. Some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly, you know, some of our our investors are quite happy. We do have nothing to do with with that sort of production okay. system. Mm. And looking at the market right now, um, you know, I think. Uh, the type of areas you're talking, the land values over the last five years have probably gone up uh, almost exponentially. Um, water is at a very high price um, his, from historical records, I'd say. Um, and then also uh, the prices of a lot of commodities are at sort of high prices. Um, how do you make money going forward in that type of um, uh, environment? Uh, well, look, I think it, we, let's deal with the water first. We still think there's space to run on water mm -hmm. um, and you know as I said we're about adding value to the water so we do our numbers very carefully uh, and if we can't add value to that water we will trade it so holding that asset is still a good investment you know even as you say it is at a high point uh, in, in the value um, timeline uh, the landscapes we're tackling they're underutilized undercapitalized and I'll give you an example of the first property we bought was a was a dairy farm mm -hmm. hadn't been a dairy farm for probably two or three years, was really successful 20 years ago. Like the, the owner was a terrific dairy farmer. It's about 120 hectares. 
Um, we have purchased that not at a dairy price, at a substantial discount to dairy price. We can't afford to pay for infrastructure we don't want. We make that clear with every vendor we deal with that we are purchasing this as a clean bit of land. So the big houses with the uh, white picket fence and the grass inside it is of no value? No value, yeah. So they either excise them mm -hmm. and keep them or sell them, so we've done that, or we do it. So um, it's really, it is a, it's, it's a, a, a value-add strategy. We will buy this country that's unloved, undercapitalised. We will redevelop it. So on that particular property, we put in 100 hectares of subsurface drip tape. Uh, and that has now got uh, a tomato crop on it. Very high quality tomatoes. The first time we've grown these ones, uh, but very high margin tomatoes too. They will get processed into juice and exported to Japan. So it's the highest quality tomato we can grow. Um, it just transforms the gross margin we get get off that landscape. So, you know, tomatoes are somewhere in the range of eight grand a hectare to put in. Um, you know, we're hoping this gives us back in a revenue sense somewhere between sixteen and eighteen grand. And inside inside the farmlands fund, what is the impact or purpose? How does that come to... Well, to the these point? landscapes have been highly modified, and I mean absolutely clear to vegetation. Mm -hmm. So almost boundary to boundary, there's not much there. The, the stuff that remains tend to be on roadside reserves or state park. So there is an enormous opportunity to revegetate. You, you can't put subsurface drip, in ta uh, drip tape in everywhere. You, you know, you can't put pivots in everywhere. There's always space. So we're working in that landscape to link up corridors of biodiversity and revegetation plantings. Um, and within the context of that, we're, we're pushing to get to a 30% coverage of the landscape. Mightn't be in one property, but across the sort of 10,000 hectares we're targeting, we get you know around two or 3,000 hectares that's put to a sequestration and biodiversity outcome. Uh, and we're pretty confident we'll be able to actually sell those sequestration uh, services to business in future, which we haven't modelled in any of our current outlooks. And Colin, over the medium to long term, investors looking at that type of an investment, what sort of expectations should they have, do you think, or what's reasonable in terms of returns over the medium to long term? Uh, well, this is not financial advice, David, but you know, sure. we'd say 10 to 12%. You know, that, that's a realistic proposition and you know, that's pretty much what we've proven we can do in the past. Colin, before we wrap up, um, and thank you very much. It's been fantastic, really enlightening. I can I really, really love the, top, the topic and the subject. Um, can, can you give us any words of wisdom or advice for many of our clients who really love rural Australia and have had investments in the past or exposures where they just feel it's too hard, too risky, um, too much capital to be deployed with poor outcomes and too much volatility? Do you have any type of advice when they're looking at rural investments that you could share with them? That oh, would look, help them I, in their thinking? Yeah, from if we're looking into the future, from this point on, I, I'd say there's two or three things. Now, if you're looking at impact, you want to be certain that the impact being delivered. So we are the first corporate in Australia that has exposed ourselves to an independent assessment of physical metrics around the condition of our environmental assets. Uh, and we will publish a report each year, just like we do financial report, we will publish an environmental condition report, independently certified, saying this is the trend in the condition of our underlying assets. So I think if you're looking for impact, 
ticking ESG boxes or sustainable investment goals or, you know, that's all nice, but you need real physical metrics and people should be diligent about, about applying that. The second thing is actually preparation for climate change. So if somebody's saying you should invest in farmland uh, or water and not considering climate change future, walk the other way. Um, you know, we are in a quite different paradigm and we need to respond. Having said that, I reckon Australia is absolutely fabulously placed to respond in providing more food for more people using less land and less water while protecting the environment and delivering a farmland landscape that is part of the climate change solution. We've proven you can do that and so we think, you know, Australia is well placed to do it. Um, and, and the third thing I think is, you know, if you're looking for uncorrelated returns, diversification, capital protection, you know, real assets do provide that for, for you. So, you know, obviously it's like everything, you wouldn't put all your money into it, but it does provide a terrific opportunity. Makes me think, is, I said that was the last question, but I'll ask one anyway. Um, is there any gearing inside the fund? Uh, we don't tend to, no, no. So we do use debt, but it's really to service operational requirements. And, and as a percentage of the fund, roughly, it doesn't get above the... Oh, look, the, we, we, it, it, it's really it's going to be linked to crops each year. So, yes. you know, it, it's... it's Short term. Short term, yeah. So okay. Short term operational finance. And, yeah. and in the farmland fund, uh, the redemption or illiquidity period for investors coming in, are they locked in for a certain time? That's a really good point. I think in the context of our investments, you know, the, the investment horizon you need to consider, you know, this is a value-add strategy, you know, it's a bit like private equity, you need that sort of mindset, I reckon, so it is a yep. uh, long term. We will have liquidity, you know, and there'll be liquidity events and we'll try and, you know, we're, we're working at sort of uh, building that in annually, a process for that, but really you should have a long-term seven to 10 year outlook, I reckon. Excellent. Helen, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.